Right, our subject this morning is religious pressures. And the way I'd like to uh, approach this uh, this morning is um, I'd like to talk to you about why I'm a conservative Mennonite and why I intend to remain a conservative Mennonite. I am a member of uh, Mid-Atlantic Fellowship Church in Pennsylvania, have been for um, over 40 years, and um, I work for Believers Fellowship, or Mission Interest Committee, the Beachy Amish Mission in Northwestern Ontario, and that's clearly where I'm at and where I'm going to be. And uh, our segment of the church is where I have invested my life and where I intend to invest my life. And I have no sense of insecurity about where I am in the church. And uh, I uh, feel very settled in the segment of the church that I'm in. And I know that many people would say, well, you just are who you are because of the family you were born into. And, you know, I'd say, it's, uh, you know, you were born into a Mennonite family. So, you know, obviously that's, you got indoctrinated. And, and um, we had a uh, family in the mission one time that had a new baby. And so three or four of us staff families were in at the hospital looking at the new baby. And the Anglican priest came in and he said, um, well, just because there's a new Mennonite in the world, does that mean that everybody has to come and look at him? And my wife said to him, uh, Reverend Rolls, you know, according to our theology, he's not a Mennonite yet. And he said, well, I'm just afraid with the proper upbringing and teaching and training, the world's going to have to suffer another one. <laughs> so, sometimes uh, we think that it is because of where we were born, and while that has an impact and influence on us, for me personally, and we'll talk about the, I'll talk to you about this a little later, but I made a choice as a junior in high school as to where I wanted to identify and what part of the church uh, I wanted to, to be in. So for me, it was when I was born, but it was also a personal choice. And I hope that you've also have logically and, and intentionally made that choice to be a part of the segment of the church that, that you are a part of. So I want to start, first of all, with why I'm a deist. And we talked a little bit last night about our society is shifting to a secular society, and, and the non-religious segment of our society is growing because people have turned away from the church. And so the big, one of the pressures we face is, well, why do you believe in anything? Why do you believe in God at all? Um, you know, it's just a big bang. And, um, but we always have to go back, and William Lane Craig has done some really good work on uh, well, he has a couple of things. Uh, one of his things that's really good is the is one of the concepts he has that's really good is what is what is the uncaused cause? Like there has to be something that caused everything. So you go back to the Big Bang. Where did the matter come from that was there that existed for the Big Bang to happen? What? How did that come into being? So you either have to say that God is eternal or that matter is eternal. But there has to be something that is uncaused by something else. Or the other thing that William Lane Craig talks about is the unmoved mover. So the whole universe is in motion, right? Our galaxy is spinning. Our planet is moving within the galaxy. Our solar system, our planet is moving around the sun. Everything is in motion. But in comparison to what? So if everything is in motion, there has to be something stationary, right? There has to be something that's not moving. So what is the unmoved Mover And to put something into motion, there has to be a stationary force that pressures something into motion. So what is the unmoved mover? Who's stationary 
that put everything into motion. And so some of those concepts are good in thinking about the existence of God. For me, when I look at the universe, whether you look at it through a telescope or a microscope, uh, it just seems more logical that there is uh, a designer. The existence of God is revealed in the night sky as well as in the ways of the ant. The psalmist talks about uh, when I look at the stars and the work of your hands and I wonder, what is man that you're mindful of him? And so looking at the universe puts a puts us in, in perspective. And then you look at the microscopic smallest things and it says, there's, a dis- there's order. And that doesn't happen by, that doesn't happen by, by accident. I often talk about probabilities of you know, chance and, and that things happen by chance. I say, you would think <clears throat> that out of all the times that I fly, there would be a chance that at least once my suitcase would be the first one on the luggage rack and about all the times I've flown with all the probabilities that it could happen every time but the only time it ever did was when I was the only person on the plane (laughs) so but it puts chance into perspective and then you think about how complex life is and you think about just something like the human eye it's I just don't understand how the human eye could come into existence by chance it's too complex there's too many things that would how could that just kind of develop on, on its own it just doesn't seem logical to me and so for that reason for those reasons I believe that God exists and uh, that he is the creator and the designer but I could be a deist and not be a Christian so I could believe that God exists but I could choose not to be a Christian there are many religious people in the world that believe that God is in existence but they're not they're not Christian. They may be parts of other religions or they may be animistic, but they are not Christian. The thing that convinces me to be a Christian is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and that that happened as a real physical historical event. Here's some of the reasons why I believe that. Again, much of this comes from William Lane Craig. The Jews didn't deny the empty tomb. If the tomb wasn't empty, all the Jews would have had to do would say, well, here it is. Like his body's still there. And they didn't. Even Jesus' opposition, even the opposition to the early church, the best explanation they had was the disciples stole his body and they paid people to say that. So they didn't deny the empty tomb and the gospels were written too soon after the event to be legends. Uh, it takes, they say it takes about a hundred years until you can have legends around an event. The Gospels were written, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest Gospel that was written. It was, it's estimated the Gospel of Mark was written within about 15 years of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And scholars believe that there's another document that we don't have. Uh, they call it the Q document that was sort of the, the, um, uh, the basis or the framework on which the gospel writers used to draw their um, historical record of, the, of, the Jesus, of the Jesus Christ, and that would have existed before the Gospel of Mark. But the Gospel of Mark was written and distributed within 15 years of the resurrection. That's too soon. If it wasn't true, people could have said, they're lying. Like, it, it, that didn't really happen that way. So you think about something like 9-11, 
we're too close to 9-11. We're 14 years away from 9-11. That's too recent history for there to be legends. So you have people, I mean, today you have people saying, well, there were thousands of Muslims celebrating in Jersey City. And people say, no, there weren't. It didn't happen. You can say it, but it's all, just saying it over and over doesn't make it true. Uh, it didn't happen. So there's no evidence for it. And you can say it, but, but there's too many people that were in Jersey City and, and it didn't happen. So, there, I mean, were there a few, maybe? I, who knows? But, but there weren't thousands and thousands. So we're too close to the event for there to be legends. And so, when the Gospels were first distributed, if they, were, if they were fabrications, there were too many people who were alive that would have said, no, that, that didn't, it wasn't that way. That's not right. Uh, now, you have the other Gospels that come later, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which is supposedly ascribed to the disciple Thomas, but he didn't really write it, but it, it, was, it was written maybe 125 years after Christ. Now, in the Gospel of Thomas, the record of the um, resurrection is uh, three angels appeared and the one angel had a big cross coming out of his head that went up into the heavens and he said yay and amen and now that's the stuff of legends but you don't have any of that in the gospels it's just you almost get the feeling that the gospel writers they were just kind of saying it the way it was even stuff that that didn't uh, put them in a very good light one of those things is that the women discovered the empty tomb. You would think if the disciples were fabricating a story, they would have had Peter and John discovering the empty tomb, right? Uh, they would have been the guys who were out there saying, and then we knew it was going to happen, and so we went over and checked it out, and sure enough, he was gone. And, you know, we, um, but they, they didn't. And you think about the role of women in the time that they were writing. Women were second-class citizens. There was a rabbi who wrote, one time uh, in this time period saying, I thank God that I wasn't born a Gentile, a, a woman, or a dog. And so, that was kind of the thinking. And even though the, the Bible says that a thing needs to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses, those witnesses had to be men. The, the, the testimony of women wasn't recognized as reliable testimony in, in any kind of court. Because women weren't thought to be reliable. So, if you, if you had women finding the tomb... People who were reading it at that time would automatically assume, well, that's not reliable. I mean, who's going to believe women when they say the tomb was empty? And that's why Peter and John, when the women came and told, they go dashing over there. Because uh, they, they want to see it. And so, it just, it just seems like even the things that, that they wrote didn't put them in a good light. And so, it doesn't seem that uh, if it was a fabrication, that they would have written it that way. The changed life of the apostles and their willingness to die for Christ to confirm their message. Um, the fact that all of them, except John, were martyred, and they all held to their faith to the end. I mean, there's a lot of things that people say, but you start threatening to behead them, and maybe they're, maybe they're willing to, to say, well, okay, it wasn't quite that way. And to have 11 men who go to their death saying, that was true. It's phenomenal. Think about FIFA. You know, FIFA, you get, or Watergate, you get, well, you get one person who's arrested, and all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of people who are saying, hey, let me tell you what else was going on, and you know, I'll tell you what I know. Before that, they're all saying, no, there's no corruption, everything's good, you know, we're all fine, and, and no, there's no corruption here. Then you arrest one person, and everybody else starts talking, uh, hoping for, for um, immunity from prosecution or something. 
So you would think when the first disciple was martyred, the rest would have said, hey, wait a minute, like, let us tell you this true story here. Like, it didn't really happen that way. And they all would have backtracked. Somebody would have backtracked, but nobody did. And so I think it's amazing that 11 men would all die saying that a lie was true. And so I just don't, it doesn't make any sense that it was a lie. And then the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were not illusions. Um, they weren't hallucinations. Um, and in Corinthians, Paul says that he appeared to 500 men at one time. So you might have one person that says, hey, I think I saw him on the street the other day, and they were mistaken. But you get 500 people at one time seeing the same apparition. It's not a hallucination. And the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians early enough, and he's saying he was seen by this person, this person, and many others. And what he was saying is there's a lot of people who are still alive that have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. You can go back. And you can ask them. And when Paul wrote that, there were still a lot of those people living. So if anybody had questions about whether what Paul was writing was true, they could go back, talk to the people, find out if it was true. And I just, I'm convinced that the resurrection happened. And for me, that changes everything. Because Jesus could, people make all kinds of claims. But when you're dead, you're dead. There's lots of people that have done lots of phenomenal things and, and lots of amazing things. And they died and that was it. But Jesus made the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And when he died, God the Father confirmed his identity by raising him from the dead. And in a moment of time, he went from being dead to being alive. In the book of Revelation, Jesus appears to John and he says, I am he who was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. That is something that has never happened in history before. Other people who died, they were resuscitated. Poor Lazarus. He died, he was resuscitated, he had to die again. And the widow's son from Nain, he died, he was resuscitated, he had to die again. But that's not the kind of, Jesus wasn't resuscitated, he was resurrected. And now death has been defeated. And so that puts it in a whole different perspective. So there's a lot of things about Scripture that I don't understand. But I'm willing to live with a lot of question marks based on the foundational truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'm too small of an intellect to understand all the questions about Scripture. But I'm sure that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm willing to state my eternal destiny on the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, I have no other basis on which to even think that I could go into eternity on any other philosophy or any other way of thinking my eternal destiny is staked on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he was dead but now he's alive forevermore and through him we can have the forgiveness of sins and be with him throughout eternity that, that's that's the core of Christianity. And I'm committed to that core. Now, I could be a Christian and not be a Mennonite. So why am I a Mennonite? Well, here are four foundational commitments of the early Anabaptists. Now, one of the things we have to remember is that early Anabaptists were all over the map, too. So people say, well, the early Anabaptists believe this or that. And, and you can kind of choose your early Anabaptists, I guess. But... Here were things that, as the movement solidified, these were four things that were foundational to the, uh, to the, the long-term uh, Anabaptist movement. One was biblicism, simple and literal. That 
the Bible is the word of God. And we just do what it says. We, we look at scripture, whether we like it or not, we, we try to live it out. And I know we don't do it perfectly. And Calvin reminded us some of the challenges we have. It was excellent. Uh, so we're not perfect at doing it. But it's our heart's desire. Uh, it's what we want to do. And we're not saying it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it does matter. The Bible does matter. You know, one of, the, one of the unique characteristics of the early Anabaptist church was expository preaching. Just going through the word of God, verse by verse, and preaching the whole word of God. And, and it, we have this commitment to, uh, to biblicism. Secondly, discipleship, that it's the essence of Christianity. That, as I was saying last night, you don't enter into the straight gate and then walk on the broad road. And, but discipleship is to live the disciplined life is important. And the third one goes along with that, a disciplined believer's church. That the church is a voluntary organization. You see, what was happening at that time was you had the state churches. So you had the Catholic countries and you had the Protestant countries. If you were born in Italy, you were baptized as a Catholic. If you were born in Germany, you were baptized as a Lutheran. And then evangelism was done within the church. So everybody was everybody in the territory, geographical territory, was a church member. But then you tried to evangelize within the church. And the Anabaptists had a whole different concept of church. That you don't come into the church because of being baptized as, as an infant and, and being born in Germany or, or Italy or wherever. But it's a, it's a choice that you make. You make a commitment to Christ and that to be part of a church, you have to be committed to Christ and you have to have that, that commitment to walk with Christ. And, and then you live the Christian life. And if you're not living the Christian life, you don't stay as part of the church. That there's... There's a way into the church and there's a way out of the church. And, and the church is made up of those who are committed to Christ, who are living the Christian life, who are, who are living a disciplined life, walking with Christ, following Christ, who are accountable to one another. Um, you see, I, I've often said to my fellow pastor, our biggest challenge is in, in doing evangelism and bringing people into the church is that our Anabaptist concept of the church is so different from the evangelical churches or the Catholic church or the Anglican church our, our concept of the church if people understood our concept of the church and they bought into the concept of the brotherhood and the brotherhood accountability and all of those things the rest of the issues would kind of melt away but the problem is that in our society especially when individualism is held so high people want to come into the church but they don't want to be they don't want the accountability they don't want the, the responsibility to, like, who sh why should anybody else be, be speaking into my life? I mean, it's between me and God. Who are you to say anything about the way I live? Or, you know, if I drive a Mercedes or not, like, that's none of your business, right? Like, that's, that's, but our concept of the church, it does matter. And it is important that we speak into each other's lives because we're helping each other on the journey. And that's a whole different concept of church. And sometimes people think that we as Mennonites, that we're just, we're sort of like evangelicals, but we've got a few extra rules and we ought to just get over it and just kind of merge into the, into the evangelical church. No, we're not. Uh, we're not evangelicals with a couple extra rules. We're all, we have a whole different, we have a whole different uh, theology. We have a whole different, and it centers on our view of the church. 
And it's also, uh, getting to the, the next fourth point here, is peace and nonviolence as a way of life in human relationships. And it also gets into our relationship with the government and how we relate to society. Our view of the church is different and our view of how the church interacts with the state and interacts with society is altogether different. So, uh, I'm not an artist here, and, uh, but let's, let's just uh, think about this. If this is the state and this is the church and the Catholic view is that you have the state, you have the church, and there's areas of overlap. And where there are areas of overlap, the church dictates to the state. So there were cases in history where the Pope deposed kings because the kings weren't following the orders of, of the church. So Henry VIII, that's what was going to happen to him because he divorced his wife and wanted to remarry and so then he just left the Catholic Church and started the Anglican Church so that he could do that. But their, their view was that there's the state, there's the church, there's overlap, and the church dictates to the state where there's overlap. Then you have the reform view where you have the, the same thing. You have the state and you have the church. And the reform view, Zwingli was in, in Zurich and um, Conrad Rebel and Zwingli and some of the others, they were having discussions about things like infant baptism, statues of the church, and those kinds of things. And initially, Zwingli agreed with Grebel and the Anabaptist reformers, the men who became the early Anabaptist reformers. He agreed with them about infant baptism and the statues of the church. However, he said he went to the city council and asked for permission to stop doing infant baptism and take the statues out of the church. And the city council said no. So Zwingli said, I can't do it. So the reform view was, there's overlap, there's a state, there's a church. There's, when there's overlap, the state gives the mandate for the church. Now, our view as Anabaptists is that there are two circles. There's the state and there's the church. But our, our two-kingdom theology basically says these are separate entities. And, and while we live in a country and we have citizenship in a country, we obey the laws of the country to the extent that they don't violate the commands of God. But the state does not dictate to the church what the church should practice and do. But on the other hand, neither does the church dictate to the state what the state should be doing. So we're not on the street protesting same-sex marriage. Because it's not the job of the church to tell the state what to do. We should expect that heathen are going to be heathen. And they're going to live like heathens live. The lady in Kentucky that got into trouble, she is the classic portrayal of why the two kingdom theology makes sense. You can't be in the church and try and be the state. And you see, when the Anabaptist movement got into trouble, our, the biggest problem we have in our history as Anabaptists is Munster. We like to, we like to dismiss Munster and say, well, that, 
that was insanity and that wasn't really us. But Munster is part of our history and it's an important part of our history and we should remember Munster. There was a German accountant in Dryden that uh, was doing some, uh, some work for county work for Northern Youth uh, when I was with them. And uh, one day I was having a meeting with him and, and uh, he was saying, you know, people in this town think that you're, you guys, you Mennonites are really good people. But he said, you know what, I, I, I grew up in Germany. And he said, I know who you people are. And he said, I, I've seen the cages in Munster. And I know who you are. And you don't hide from me. Well, Munster is part of our history. And what Munster proves to us as Anabaptists is it doesn't work when we try to be the state. That's the lesson that we should get out of Munster. If we try and, and put Anabaptism into practice, but we try and be the state, we're going to wind up with what we, had, what we had in Munster. So we allow the state to be the state. And we recognize that they are ordained by God to do the things that they do. So our view of peace and nonviolence is different from a pacifistic view. Because a pacifistic, pacifistic view would say there should never be war and the church should keep the state from going to war. But then we're slipping into this model of relationship between church and state. Well, our model is the state is going to have wars. And it's, we should be grieved when there's war. And we should grieve the loss of life, whether that's Syrians and Iraqis or whether it's, it's Americans or Canadians. But we, it's not our job to run the state or to tell them what to do. Because having a Christian nation is an oxymoron. It, it, it's impossible. It's like in, in the grocery store where I live, they have Mennonite sausage. And you can't have Mennonite sausage. I often wonder, who baptized that sausage? Because it it's impossible to have Mennonite sausage. And so you can't have a Christian nation. You can have a nation that has a lot of Christian people. You can have sausage that was made by Mennonites in a Mennonite style, but you can't have Mennonite sausage. Neither can you have a Christian nation. So the two-kingdom theology is foundational to our view of the church. And if we start to get drawn in, you see, part of the religious pressure we face, well, good people ought to vote. If good people don't vote, then we're going to bad politicians. So all it takes for evil to conquer is for good people to do nothing. How often have you heard that? Well, we're not doing nothing. We're, that's, voting isn't the only thing to do. Voting is maybe not even the most powerful thing to do. So, and besides, when you look at who you have to choose from, I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. But, but this is so foundational. But we can lose our, we can, we can, we can lose the two kingdom theology concept to where we don't understand our own theology. And we can kind of say, well, I don't vote, I don't participate in the military, we've got to check off some boxes of stuff we don't do without understanding why we don't do that. And what I was saying to you last night is, the real power in the world is the church. It's not the state. And we tend to think that real power, we get lured into thinking that real power is in the state. And somehow we have to have good politicians and good government in order for the church to prosper and all those things. That's not true. The church has prospered under all kinds of governments. And even if we would have, people say, well, if everybody would be like you and, and 
I mean, Hitler would have won World War II and we'd all be living under the Nazis. Well, could we be Christian under the Nazis? Probably. It would look really different. I don't know that I would want to do that, but it would be possible. That wouldn't be the end of Christianity. Christianity has prospered under some very, very difficult... Think about under Mao. How, how Christianity prospered under, under Mao. Say its own. And so, we get all paranoid about, well, the government has to do this. It's kind of irrelevant. Uh, it, and so, I just encourage you, like, we, we get so much pressure from other believers to get drawn into this reform way of thinking of the church and the state. And then that also affects our, our view of the church and what the church is. And I just think that the Mennonite view of the church is, I just think, it, it's, I just think it's the best model out there for how the church should function. And I think in our society where we have crumbling communities and crumbling families, an intact community really has something to offer. And this gets into so many things. When we lived in Haiti, we had a lot of people that came from Catholic background. We had one lady who was living common law with a man. And so she wanted to be a church member, but she couldn't because she was living common law with this man she wasn't married to. We had communion every two months. And every two months, that lady would come to us as pastors and she would beg for communion. And we tell her, no, you, like, you've got to separate from that man. You, can't, you can become a church member, but you can't do it while you're living with that man. And I don't know how many times she called. Actually, one time after we uh, denied her communion, she got up the next Sunday morning and gave her testimony in church and she talked about how she was saved from witchcraft and her father was a witch doctor and she was raised in witchcraft and she grew up in witchcraft and she married a witch doctor and and she, and then she kind of turned around after all she was talking to us as pastors and she was kind of shaking her finger at us and saying, I don't care what you say about me and I don't care, I know that I was saved and I know that God saved me and whether you give me communion or not, I don't, I just know that God saved me and it doesn't, and, oh, it was, it was, it was bad. And, and one time she came right, be, the, right before communion, uh, the pastor, the Haitian pastor and I were sitting together and she, we saw her coming. And he said, oh, Pastor Morel, here she comes again. I know she's going to ask for communion. And he said, oh, I get so tired of telling her, no, you tell her this time. So, uh, so I had to explain to her why we can't. But you know, what her thing was is, you guys want me to separate from my common law partner, but I can't do it because I don't have the power of God in me. If you would just give me communion, then the power of God would come into me and I could do what you're asking me to do. But you're denying me the power of God that would come into me through the sacraments and then I could be the person you want me to be. But I can't do it because you won't. it's your fault because you won't give me communion. See, she was looking at it from a Catholic point of view that the power is infused to us through the taking of the sacraments. And I was talking to a Catholic priest in Sulukau one time and we were talking about how do we experience God? And he was saying, well, for us it's through the sacraments. Like we... We, it comes to us through the sacraments. And much of what we would say that we get from our devotional life and our prayer time and our Bible reading, that's how he was describing what happens to them when they, when they receive the sacraments. So I was saying, well, if that's true, then you'd want to you'd have the sacraments all the time. And he said, yeah, we do. We do it every morning. He said, we have, a, we have a Mass every morning. And there are people who come to the church every morning and they participate in Mass. They receive the sacraments and it God's, comes into their lives and that's how they live the Christian life. And, and you see, that's the Catholic view. Now, on the other side... In the Protestant view of communion, it's like, it's all between you and God. And 
it's just it doesn't there's nothing horizontal about communion it's all about my relationship with God let a man examine himself and you know it's all you know the verses and it's just uh, it's all about me and God and it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else so we had a couple that came to our church this guy had actually gone through a Christian missionary alliance uh, seminary so he knew he had his theology down pat and he said uh, we moved to Sulukov and we were looking for a church and he said we were asking people what church should we go to in Sulukov he said, people told us, well, don't go to Believer's Fellowship because you can't take communion there unless you're a member. And he said, we went to the other churches, and, but nothing was quite what we wanted. And so we said, well, we're going to go visit Believer's Fellowship. So he said, we did. And he said, we came for a couple of Sundays. And he said, one, after about two or three Sundays on the way home, he said, I told my wife, it's not true. Um, they're too friendly. They're too warm. They're too welcoming. Uh, I don't believe what people said. So he said, we were coming. He said, we, we were attending here for about four months. And then you guys get up one Sunday morning and announce that you're having communion this evening for members. And he said, I, we just couldn't believe it. And uh, we had a long discussion. We had a lot of discussions about it. But one of our discussions, he was saying, you, are, you have made yourself a gatekeeper. It's not your table. It's the Lord's table. And you have made yourself a gatekeeper to the Lord's table. And you are refusing, my wife and I, access to something that is not yours to give. It's the Lord's table. You have no right to say who can come to the Lord's table and who can't. It's not your table. It's the Lord's table. I thought, well, you don't understand our concept of the church. Like, it's not just about your relationship with God. It's, I am not keeping you from the Lord's table. You are welcome to come to the Lord's table. However, you, we would welcome you as members. And then you could participate in the Lord's table. But you have to be part of the brotherhood. This is... This is, communion to us is more than just, okay, we're all in a right relationship with God. Communion is, this is, this is my local body. I am committed here. I am accountable to this brotherhood. These people can speak into my life. I will speak into their lives. We are, we are going to progress together in the Christian life. We're going to hold each other accountable. There's going to be discipleship. I'm making myself accountable to this local body. And there were all kinds of feasts in the Old Testament where the whole community got together and they lived in booths for seven days and they did all kinds of stuff and everybody came. But Passover was every family in their house behind closed doors with their Passover lamb and the blood on the door frames of the, of the house. The Passover was, was each family in their house. Communion is based on the Passover and it is each church family in their house. Now, if there were visitors, if they're, they could participate and all that, but... but that's our basis, and that's our... Well, he said, uh, you're ignoring all the verses where, you know, they went from house to house and broke bread, and, you know, you, you, and he was saying, and so I said, but, but you'd be welcome. You could, we'd welcome you as members. And I'm not, not keeping you from the Lord's table. He said, yeah, but then we'd have to follow the dress code. And I said, well, but see, if, if you would decide you want to be a cowboy here, then I'm saying, like, Nate and I, we did not sit down and say... What exotic things could we require to make it really hard for people to be members? So we look at things like the veiling and we say, that's what the Bible says a woman should do. And so Nate and I didn't sit down one day and say, let's have all the ladies wear veilings. That would make it really hard for people to be members. That would prove their commitment. But the Bible says a woman should do it. So whether we like it or not, we have to find a way of applying it and doing it. Yeah, he said, but do you know that 99.9% of the church in North America disagrees with you about your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, doesn't that bother you? I said, no. He said, no, I'm even more worried about you because 
you, you recognize that 99.9% .9 of the church disagrees with you and it doesn't even trouble you. I said, well, no, it doesn't. Um, and, but that's how we as a body have decided. That's what we've decided, our interpretation of it, how we're going to practice it. I'm not bothered by that at all. What other people do is not my concern. They're not accountable to me. But this is what we feel God teaches and what we want to do. I said, you know what? Like, why, why do you attend our church? I said, we attend your church because we like the family feel. There's closeness here. There's, there's uh, the word of God is preached. You know, that's why we come here. I'm saying, so two blocks away is the Baptist church. Like, they're already doing what you're asking us to do. So why don't you go to the Baptist church? Then you, you could have what you want at the Baptist church. We don't like it at the Baptist church. I said, why not? Well, it just doesn't feel the same. I said, well, do you realize if we would do what you're asking us to do, then we would feel the same as the Baptist church. The closeness that you like here is a result of the accountability and the brotherhood that we have. And so if, if we would do what you're asking us to do, then we would become like the Baptist church and then you wouldn't like it here either. No, he said, that wouldn't happen. Like, you guys could keep what you have. And he, but we didn't get anywhere. And eventually they went to the Baptist church. But... But you see, we have something that is built on a theology of the church that creates a product and a result that sometimes we don't understand where it comes from because we're not, we don't understand our own theology well enough. So one of the reasons why I'm a Mennonite is because, well, it's these things. Uh, I just think that's where I want to be in, in the church. Now, I want to say something about how we relate to other believers. Number one, uh, I think too often, especially as conservative Mennonites, we've been embarrassed and apologetic and shy about who we are. And we don't engage with other believers with the confidence of, well, this is what I believe. And we feel intimidated. Sometimes it's because we don't understand our theology well enough to explain it. We know what we do, but we don't know why. And so we ought to educate ourselves in our theology so that we can interact with people from other denominations with confidence and saying, well, this is who I am. And I come to the table with my beliefs and who I am. And you can like me or not like me. You can agree with me or disagree with me. But this is what I, who I am and what I believe. And I'm not shy about it. I'm not embarrassed about it. Uh, I'm confident that this is who I am and where I want to be. Secondly, it's not my job to judge people of other denominations. I, I, a couple of years ago, I was traveling, and I got on the airplane, and you know how it is, uh, hopefully you know how it is, when you fly economy, and they put all the first-class people on first, you know, and then they sit there and watch all us peons come in later and, and kind of look down on us. But I walked in this airplane, and there in first class was a soldier in uniform, and he had his table top down, and in his Bible there, and he was... He obviously had a well-read, well-used Bible. Now, to me, something happened to me when I walked past him. Because I just thought, how can that be? Like, how can a student of the Word like that, how can he be in uniform? How can he be in the military? But you know what? I had to say, he's not my servant. I'm not responsible for him. Uh, God needs to show him. Obviously, he's reading the Word. And so, I'm... I think I want people to um, I want people of other denominations to respect who I am 
And where I've chosen to live out my faith, what I believe, I'm willing to interact with them, dialogue with them about theology and all those things. But ultimately, uh, we need to be concerned about ourselves. And when I walk up past a person like that, and I wonder, how can he be reading his Bible and not seeing what the Bible says about nonviolence? I have to ask myself, the better question for me to ask is, what am I reading that I'm not understanding? What would God like to... What, when God watches me read my Bible, what does God say? How can he read that and not get it? Because obviously there are things I haven't comprehended yet. And so, it's just a reminder to me that I can be reading the Word of God and be missing some really important things. And I just need to be asking God to help me to see those things. So now, why am I... Uh, Conservative Mennonite. Because I could be a Mennonite and not be a conservative Mennonite. So here's part of my story. I went to, um, I went to, I was raised in Lancaster Conference. Uh, 1968, the Eastern Church split from Lancaster Conference. Our congregation went with the Eastern Church. So in 1968, I wound up as a member of the Eastern Church. Um, I went to Lancaster Mennonite High School, which was a Lancaster Conference high school. I was probably one of the more one of the most conservative students in high school. There were about 200 students in my class, about 500 students in school altogether. I was a dorm student there. We went on Monday morning and went home Friday evening. And um, a lot of weekends I went with my friends. So um, by the time I was 15, I was kind of at school with my friends um, and then home over summers. Now I had really good friends who were in Lancaster Conference, who were in Franconia Conference. And I really, the first two years, um, I was really embarrassed about where I came from and what kind of church I was a part of. I didn't really want anybody to know. And so we'd have banquets at school and that kind of stuff. I would borrow a suit coat from one of my buddies and because uh, I didn't want them to know that I wear a plain suit. That would have been a social disaster, I thought. And so I, I just, uh, I wasn't going to do that. And... Uh, so I didn't really want anybody to know what kind of a church I came from. And, but somewhere in my junior year of high school, I started to think about, okay, like here's all the options. Like obviously my friends are committed to Christ. We share a lot of values. The other thing that was going on was it was in the middle of the Vietnam War, maybe getting toward the end of the Vietnam War. There was a lot of anti-war protests some of my teachers, some of my friends were going to Washington to the demonstrations and on the street demonstrating. And I was saying, like, do I do that? Uh, should I be on the street in Washington protesting the war? Or what, what do I do about war? And there's always a whole bunch of questions swirling around. And I kind of sorted out, okay, what part of the church am, do I, am I going to identify with? And where, where am I going to plug into the church? There's all these options. What about me? And I decided, you know what? I'm going to plug into the conservative Mennonite church. And I started wearing my plain suit, sort of functions at school. And I, started, I just kind of felt like, okay, this is who I am. Well, you can like me or not like me. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me. Anyway, I found, out, I found out that when I accepted myself for who I was, and I, I, was, I was solid about who I was, it didn't matter to anybody else. And... I had lots of friends, and, and my social circles were just as strong as, as before. But that's part of, <clears throat> of my path of coming to intentionally identifying with the conservative Mennonite church. Here's some of the reasons why I'm a conservative Mennonite. Evaluating our walk of life by scripture, not by the surrounding culture. I guess when I look at 
the Mennonite Church USA or Mennonite Church Canada or some of the other uh, conferences that aren't uh, whatever may be that aren't conservative. Um, I just feel like culture has trumped scripture too often and things get evaluated in light of, of, of culture rather than in light of scripture. Secondly, I like our commitment to discipleship. Like, we are committed to to uh, walking the Christian walk, living it out, helping others to do the same thing. It's part of, of who we are. Um, in Sioux Lookout, um, there are probably, well, there were at one time, there were three former Mennonite couples, who families who were attending the Pentecostal church. And the Pentecostal pastor was telling me one time, you know, we're really big on deliverance. Like, we, uh, we, uh, we know how to deliver people and help them to find deliverance from bondages and those kinds of things. But he said, you know what? We find out sometimes we get people through deliverance and, and we take them through a deliverance process and we pray for them and they experience deliverance. And, but then even after their deliverance, they're still kind of a mess. And we're not quite sure what to do with them anymore because we kind of shot our whole load at them right there. And, and we don't know what else. We pray for them and we don't know what else to do for them. And their lives are still a mess. So he said, you know what I do with those people? I connect them with those people who came from the Mennonite church because they know how to do discipleship. They know how to get beside those people and walk with them and, and encourage them and help them along in life. We have a strength in discipleship. We, we, we know how to do it. And it's a strength of... of um, and, and we're committed to it. I want to be a part of a church that stands on biblical principles. I want to be a part of a church that has a commitment to living out what Scripture says and that uses Scripture as the authority. And I want a church that has a commitment to peace and nonviolence in human relationships. I believe that the conservative Mennonite church has a vital role in our world today. I don't think we're a little fragment of the church kind of hanging out there a leftover from the past. Um, but I believe that just as in the time of the Reformation, the Anabaptists were very important part of the Reformation, I believe that today, we as conservative Mennonites are, are an important part of the church in our society and in our world. I'd like to talk a little bit about can the conservative Mennonite church face the religious pressures of our time and I'd like to look at a little bit of our history most of our groups separated from the larger conferences in the 1950s through the 1990s um, at that time things were changing quite rapidly in the conferences and at different points different groups um, uh, separated from the conferences uh, probably many of your congregations have their own history in that I noticed this is your 39th uh, ministers fellowship I don't know uh, a whole lot about the history of Midwest Fellowship, but I, I remember in the 1970s when Mid-Atlantic was being formed, that Homer Miller and was um, Midwest was already um, organized ahead of that somehow. Um, but there were some some uh, very significant men, Homer Miller, Homer Bomberger, and Mid-Atlantic, and so on. When that happened. It was a reaction to the larger conferences, and there were many families that were kind of wound up on both sides of those divisions. And in some cases, the families that stayed with the conferences 
looked at those who went with the conservative churches and said, well, you're just trying to turn back the clock. Like, you're just kidding yourself. Give yourself two generations. You're going to be where we are anyway, so you can't do it. It's wasted energy. And there were vows that were made during that time, and one of those was, we are not going to be like them. And so the focus became, we're not going to be like Mennonite Church USA. We're not going to be like the conferences. One thing we're going to be sure of, we're not, and that's why any change to any rules is a really emotional subject because there are people who were, went through that division who said we're not going to be like them and we froze a set of rules when we left the conferences and were hesitant to change any of those things because we're afraid their prophecy is going to come true. Even maybe sometimes when some things maybe can I say that maybe some things ought to change? Uh, but we're hesitant. And I, I'm not against that hesitancy. I, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not a person who says we ought to just throw up the whole thing and see where things land. Like we, we have scripture as boundaries. And, and we, have, we don't want to lose that in, in any way. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we spent decades living in reaction what we don't want to be. Now that is not a sustainable reason for the existence of an organization or a church. It may have worked for a generation, but the children and the grandchildren of those people who left the conference, they don't care what Mennonite Church USA is doing. It's their third cousins by now. And they're not faced with the issues that Mennonite Church USA is facing. And our young people want a viable vision for why we exist. And not being Mennonite Church USA is not a viable vision for existence. We need a reason for existence. And I believe that the conservative Mennonite Church today is at a crossroads. Either we are going to define a well-defined reason for existence, a vision that propels us on into the future and we take our role for Christ in the world and in the spectrum of the church and we live that out faithfully and we have, a, we have something that people get a hold of and say, this is why we're here, this is what we're doing, this is our vision for doing church this way, this is why we do it this way. Or we're going to keep living in reaction and there'll be a few people who just kind of go along and, and, and maintain what we have. But I believe that you as leaders are people that I think you hold the future in your hands. I think you can help the conservative Mennonite church to be a vibrant, dynamic church. I think your vision for proper priorities can revitalize the church. Because when I interact with young people, one of the things that encourages me about young people is they want to change the world. They want to be doing something significant in the world. And that's what the church is about. That's what the church ought to be doing. And I think that we as leaders ought to be generating that vision that takes the church forward into the future with a a, a vibrant, dynamic purpose for existence. Just 
and the problem we face is the social changes in our society where we, a hundred years ago, we lived largely in agricultural communities and people, they shared farming equipment, the ladies did quilting and canning together and, and the guy and men went to the sales barn together and all those things and then they did church on Sunday and the people that they were together with on church on Sunday morning were people that they saw all through the week and church was just part of the community, the life of the community. But as we move from agriculture into the trades, many of the people that you see at church on Sunday morning, that's the only time you see them. And two hours on a Sunday morning doesn't create community. And I don't know. I don't know how we create community, but I, I struggle with it. And, and, you know, you try and do things to get people together, and the people that ought to be there don't come. And, and the ones that kind of connect anyway are the ones that come. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, one of my biggest challenges is how do you light a fire under people who don't want to burn? <laughs> like, like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get people to taste what they could experience in Christ and in the body if they would just engage? But most of our interactions, most, we have many more conversations and interactions with people who are either non-Christians or part of other denominations than we do with people from our own church. And it has an influence on the way we think and the way we look at, at, at life and the way we look at ourselves. And I don't know how to change that, but I'm just saying it's part of the dynamic that we have um, in our churches. And, but the church has to have more of a purpose than saying, we're going to get together on Sunday morning, we're going to send our children to Sunday school, we're going to listen to a message together, we're going to sing a few songs together, our children are going to grow up and they're going to marry somebody pretty much like us and then you know they'll be pretty much like us. Like, that's, that's not a sustainable vision for church. Uh, we need something bigger than that. Because God's vision is, is for the world. And somehow our vision needs to be synchronized with that. I'm suggesting four priorities for the conservative Mennonite church in the future. One is holiness. We should never, ever lose our focus on living the Christian life and living out holiness and being people of holiness. That's, that's our top priority. And along with that is evangelism. The very purpose of the church is to bring the gospel to the world. It's the good news. Uh, and evangelism is, is key. And then discipleship. Uh, to bring discipleship. You know, in our world today, some of the evangelical denominations have done a phenomenal job of evangelism, but they've done no discipleship. So you have millions of first-generation Christians around the world today that have never been spiritually parented, have never had any discipleship. And... Those Christians are longing for discipleship. And with our strength in discipleship, we should kick in and get involved in, in discipleship around the world. And then a focus on relationships and community where we actually work on putting into practice our theology of the church and what it is. And I don't have answers on how we do that, but I just know it's important that our churches really are communities of faith and that we really are knowing each other well enough that we are able to hold each other accountable. You know, my relatives, uh, my wife's family in particular, have gone through, um, um, there's been a lot of changes in, in the family and in the churches that they're part of and so on. And, and um uh, through that whole process, 
there was a lot of friction and a lot of discussion in the family and, and um, you know, a lot of family members who were saying things like, well, you know, we're finally free of legalism and now we can really grow in Christ and, you know, we got free of all the rules and, and everything. You know what? I have a friend that, that he, he went from a conservative Mennonite church to a Mennonite church in um, uh, Canada and he said to me, uh, you know, I thought initially when I got out of the conservative Mennonite church that, wow, now I can breathe. Like now I'm free of all the legalism. But he said, you know what I found out? When I got into Mennonite Church, Mennonite Church Canada, it's the same mindset. It's just a different set of rules. Now we can't shop at Walmart. We can't drive a SUV. And, and it's, it's, just a, it's just a different set of, of things that you don't do. But it's, the mindset is the same. So, but, anyway, I was talking about my wife's family. There's a lot of discussion. And, and I told some of my brother-in-laws, hey, listen, you guys, you know what happened? You made a lot of changes. And so you know that there are lots of people looking at you saying, hey, he lost out. Like, he just, he's a gone. Like, he, he left, and he's, he really lost out spiritually. So now, the pressure's really on you. Because you've got to produce spiritually. You've got to produce something to disprove all the people you know are saying you just lost out. So now you're really cranking up your spirituality and you're getting serious about stuff you should have been serious about before and now you're really, you know, producing all this internal stuff because you don't have the symbols anymore so you're, so now the pressure's really on. So, so of course you've got to do it. Um, I'm saying, you know what, you're, now you're accusing us of being legalistic and not having any spiritual fire. But you know what, I, I'm not, I, like you can choose your path. And I'm not going to come to family get-togethers and criticize you and be on your case about all the stuff that you're doing different from what I'm doing. But I think you're creating a false dichotomy. You're saying it's either the symbols or the internal spiritual life, that you can't have both. And I'm idealistic enough to think I can have both. So I want you to give me the freedom to try and have both. And I don't want you criticizing me for retaining some of the symbols but I, am, I, I promise you, I want to be as passionate about Christ as you are, and I think I can do both. <coughs> Many years ago, I was listening to the radio, listening to Chuck Swindoll, and he was preaching a message uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he was preaching on the veiling. And well, oftentimes his messages are long enough they get divided into two days. And so I was listening to the first day, and he's going through 1 Corinthians 11 the way I would go through 1 Corinthians 11. And he's saying, it's not talking about the hair, it's talking about a separate head covering, it's, you know, and he's going through it, and, and he's, I mean, he's teaching it the way we would teach it. And I told my wife, I've got to listen to tomorrow, because I know he's not going to get to the end of that message and say, so that's what scripture says, so we have to do this. So, but I can't understand, I don't know, how, how can he end a message like that? without saying that. So I'm really intrigued to know how he's going to end his message. So the second day, what he said was, at the end, he said, now I know you're going to say, well, um, you know, this is what the Bible says, so maybe we should do this. And he's saying, you know, I've been in churches where there's ladies who, they've read this passage, and they say, well, when I come to church, I should wear a hat. 
And they do. But he said, you know what, I've found some of those ladies are the most disrespectful to their husbands and disrespectful to authority. And, and they don't have the attitude that this is supposed to be having, portraying anyway. So what does God want? Does he want the attitude of the heart or does he want the hat? He wants the attitude of the heart. So we just have to develop the attitude of the heart. That's the core of the message here. And the hat doesn't really matter. Well, I'm sorry, but when you have the attitude of the heart and you have the symbol, now you've got something really powerful. Because you've got both. And so it's not an either-or situation. And I think our challenge can be that we fall into the trap of saying, I wear this, I don't do this, we check all the boxes, but we're not passionate about it in, in our hearts. And so, my encouragement to you with the pressures that we face from other denominations is that we are confident about what we believe and that we have not only the practices, but that we have the heart convictions and it's coming from the passion of our hearts and that we're living out and we're portraying to the world the biblical symbols of what God is asking us to have in our hearts. I think that is tremendously powerful. And I just encourage you to be confident about who we are and to, to live out our faith and to be the kind of people that people not only look at us and say, wow, that's really different, but they also are sensing something from our spirit that they're saying, that, that's amazing. That's intriguing. Like, what is it about that? Was that a... Well, I, I was doing a, a university class, and, and one of the men that was in the class, his name was uh, Arula Marufu Sombri, and he was a big black guy from New Jersey, and he was the head of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, prison ministry at all on the whole East Coast. And he had been a gang member and then came to Christ, and he said he wants to be as, as passionate about the gospel as he was about the gang and, and uh, but we were together for about two weeks in this class toward the end of the two weeks he said you know the reason I'm Seventh-day Adventist is because they have rules like they live out their faith like they don't they don't just it's not just a thing where I make this belief statement and then I'm in but they put it into practice and he said I'm kind of sense you guys do the same thing right and I said yeah we do uh, that's, that's what we try to do so he's saying like are all Mennonites like you so how should have I answered that? <laughs> and uh, I said, unfortunately not. Uh, but the, the challenge for us is to, to do things and to do them for the right reasons and to be confident about it. Not be apologetic, embarrassed about it. It's valuable. And um, I trust that God will help you and, and do it. May God bless you.